Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What would you think if I told you that magic was real? That down through the ages, people use magic to make their lives better, more prosperous, and joyous? Are the Harry Potter movies and books really what magic is all about? Or are there more practical applications? We'll find out today as we delve deeply into the mysteries of ancient magic and how we can recreate what we want today, now. We'll hear from media critic Adam Young on new selections of videos and other streaming media. And we'll discover news from around the world sent in from you, the listener. All this and more today on Earth Ancients. For April 21st, 2018, this is Earth Ancients. I'm your host, Cliff Dunning. Hey, how you doing? How are you today? What's going on? Welcome to Earth Ancients. Hey, this is uh, this week is uh, Expo Week, New Living Expo. This is it. Uh, after months of preparation, we have uh, people flying in from around the world to be here in the San Francisco Bay Area, April 27th through 29th. Uh, I'll have a pre-recorded show for you. I am going to try to do some interviews, uh, <laughs> if I can, with some people. Andrew Collin has a new book out on this uh, mega structure out in this uh, uh, star cluster uh, that's a, a few hundred light years from us. And I want to talk to him about some of his uh, what he's discovered and some some news. Uh, it's always fun to talk to an author after the book's written. Uh, and by the way, the book will be released at the show. And the book's called The Cygnus Key, the uh, Dennis Novin Legacy, Gobekli Tepe, and the Birth of Egypt. And it's coming out. Actually, he is, um, the publisher is Gonna uh, feature it at the at the show at the uh, New Living Expo, which uh, I'll be at for the entire weekend, and uh, that's the topic he'll be covering: the Cygnus Key. Now, remember, we had him on the show uh, about a year ago, uh, Andrew Collins, and he spoke about this huge uh, structure. 
it blocks the sun of where this planet system is. It's so big. We'll be interested to hear what he has to say. Uh, we also have Freddie Silva coming out from uh, the East Coast. Dean Radin, who we're speaking with today. Now, if you don't know who Carolyn Miss is, she is f- a fabulous speaker. She writ- wrote books like uh, The Creation of Health, Sacred Contracts. Why, one of her earlier books uh, is Why People Don't Heal and How They Can. And she is uh, originally a medical intuitive, somebody who can kind of look at a person's body and, and uh, tell you you have a problem here or you need this to, to be addressed and, and things like that. She is, <laughs> I mean, if you don't know who she is, look her up. It's, her last name is uh, M-Y-S-S, Caroline Miss. And uh, she is somebody I've wanted to have at the show for years. She literally travels the world doing talks. And she's kind of a cross between a mystic and a uh, present-day psychic in a way. And when she gets up on stage and starts talking about uh, a subject she's interested in, it, it, it really taps into the to the group. And I love those kinds of speakers. So it's not really... Her agenda, it's the group's agenda, and she'll be here in a rare appearance for four hours. So if you can get over here, uh, you should check it out. We also have people like Marilyn, uh, Marianne Williamson. Corey Good's going to be here. You all know about Corey Good and the Secret Space program. And uh, his cohort, David Wilcock, will be here. We've got James Van Prague. You know, James Van Prague talks about uh, seeing dead people, people who have passed over. And uh, we got Mike Barra, my good buddy Clifford Mahuti is going to be speaking on the uh, Star People, a new book he's coming out with on Star People. It's good always to see him. You know, it's funny, people don't get the whole Native uh, perspective, but when you hear from a Native elder, a lot of times they've been given permission by the group council to speak about you know the topic uh and in this case, it's star people. But years ago, when I had uh, panel discussions with Native people, uh, a lot of them had to break out of their uh, of the tribe of the group they were in because they were not sanctioned to be talking about a lot of these topics, and so they had to kind of go out on their own. And it's 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 much easier for Native people to to talk now because it's important for them to get the word out, uh, not only about star people, but also what their visions are, what they're seeing is coming up for not only the United States, but for the world. So it's always good to have elders come and speak at the expo. Uh, but the expo is not only, only about uh, speakers. There's uh, over a, close to 200 exhibits from around the country. And, th- and these are some of the latest minerals and vitamin therapies Body work, health. Uh, there's a, you know, there's libraries of books from different uh, companies that are promoting books, which I love. There's just a lot to see at this event. I mean, there's an organic food court if you've uh, are really you know, wanting some food. I, I think there's two parts to the organic <laughs> food place. There's a 100% organic vegan which means there's no meat or, or dairy or, or animal products whatsoever. 
And uh, if you're like me and you need a burger once in a while, there's the other side. <laughs> there's the meat side. So there's the meat and then there's the organic. I mean, here in California, there's a lot of people that are vegan and that's uh, their lifestyle or vegetarian. I have family members that are vegetarian. So, hey, there's something for everybody at this expo. And uh, if you can get out April 27th through the 29th, come out and say, hey, you know, let me know you're going to be in the area. Send me an email, cliff at earthancients.com. And I said, we got a, we got actually, oh, hey, we got two pairs of tickets left. So uh, those are good for the whole day. So let me know. Send me an email, cliff at earthancients.com. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's um, one of the big shows that I attend, and I actually work here uh, at the show, so that should be fun. And then uh, next show that we have coming up in June, June 1st through the 4th, is Contact in the Desert. That's down south in uh, Southern California at the uh, Palm Palm Desert, and that'll be uh, another show that I'll be attending and interviewing people, so, you know... Uh, it's expo time. I want to remind you that uh, the Mexico trip is filling up. Yucatan, Mexico. This is Journey to the Land of the Maya, the Sacred Pyramid Tour, November 17th through the 24th. Now, I'm only taking 25 people, and I say I think we're a third full. It's not, you know, we got many months left, but this is something really to check out because. We get special access at at a number of sites. We're going to see the classics like Chichen Itza, Ushmol, Koba, uh, Edzna. uh, And we get air-conditioned buses down to all these locations. Our our headquarters, our our center is in Mareda. But these these cities that we're going to see are constantly being excavated and updated, and they're always finding new buildings. So that's one of the really cool parts of this tour you know i talk about climbing on the pyramids and uh, and walking around some of these uh, standing uh, stila these standing markers which is, is very cool coba which is on the caribbean side and that takes about an hour and a half to get to by bus is huge and we've added that to the show this year simply because not only can you climb on the main pyramids but everybody gets a bike, and uh, we bike to various uh, locations on this massive city. And it's one of my all-time favorite places simply because they don't know how how, how big it is. It's so big. <laughs> they keep finding uh, different buildings that are in different states of repair. And it's like 10 miles square. It's huge. It's huge. But it's a blast to go to. And so we'll go to Coba, Tulum. We'll have lunch over in that area. Uh, and then we'll come back to our uh, our hotel in Mareda. Each day we'll be doing something very cool. And uh, if you want to see the entire itinerary, uh, it's at uh, earthangents.com forward slash tours. Come on out. Come out and join me for a fabulous holiday. It's uh, Thanksgiving week. And it's really a, a wonderful opportunity to chill, but also join me for a spectacular uh, chance to see these uh, ruins, to experience Mayan culture, and to get away from it all, just to get away from it all. So November 17th through 24th, 
journey to the land of the Maya. Okay, I'm going to read a couple of uh, emails from you. Thank you for sending emails. You can uh, send in an email to cliff at earthancients.com or go to the website and you can just, there's a place where you can send me an email if you're, you're interested in the show. You have a comment to make. I get suggestions uh, all the time, which is great. There's always stuff out there that you might be interested in and, and uh, it may be a good fit for the show. So uh, first uh, email here is uh, called, titled Your Theme Song. It's from Jode Coleman. And Jode says, hey, every week I listen to your podcast. I always like the opening theme song, but it's never lasted for very long. And I always think, who does that? Where can I get it? So Cliff, can you provide that for me? Uh, okay, so, Joe, the uh, song is called Atlantis. Uh, I actually purchased it from a studio artist, and the studio artist is Olive Music, and it's I think it's a, a French band. And so if you want a copy, you can't buy it commercially. If you want a copy, just send me an email to cliff at Earth Ancients, and I'll give you the whole track. Uh, you have to promise not to use it for any kind of other topics, but um, I don't have the overall rights, but I do have it, the rights for the program. So if you if you want a copy, just send me a, a, an email to cliff at earthancients.com. Uh, so Joe goes on. Uh, let's see. He says, um, uh, and by the way, I listen to a lot of your podcasts during the week while I'm at work, and I consider yours to be one of my all-time favorite. I enjoy science technology, space, UFOs, and, of course, history. I love the thoughtfulness and in-depth reporting of your show, and I very much love to listen and to them each week. I would like to point out that I do not use Facebook, and I often feel left out by what you post there. And, yes, I am aware of your website. It's ironic because I used to be on Facebook, and I think it was there that I found your show. Anyway, I look forward to your reply. Keep up the great work. Be safe and make it a great day, Joe. Joe, thanks. Uh, I hope that helps you. Again, send me an email. I'll send you a copy. And anybody else who wants a copy of Atlantis, Earth Ancients Atlantis uh, track, um, I'm happy to send you a copy. This next letter is from James. And James, uh, the title of this is the new Patreon Hey, Cliff, hope you're well. I've been enjoying your podcast since shortly after you began doing your highly informative show. I can say that I, I've listened to nearly all your episodes, only missed probably less than a dozen. Love what changes you've made, and I'm still looking forward to each week's new episode. I stopped by the Patreon page and was surprised that I could listen to your extensive episodes right from my browser without signing up. Didn't know you if you intended this or not, so I'm messaging you in case you weren't aware of this. It's if it's a if it were my labor of love as EA is as Earth Ancients is yours, I would appreciate the extra money in exchange for this exclusive content. Um, by the way, uh, James and others, I have uh, purposely left a few of the uh, early interviews available so you get a sense of it uh the gallery with the giants is now you know, i think you have to at least pay five bucks a month to see that and the other 
galleries and interviews will be uh, only available if you lay some money down for a subscription. And subscriptions start at $3, so $3 a month. James continues, oh, hey, one last thing. You keep talking about your diet and such. I didn't know if you were had ever heard of the changa before. If not, it's a tree mushroom that grows primarily on birch trees in colder climates. It can be brewed as a tea or taken as a tincture uh, for a more concentrated effort. Extremely high in antioxidants, it has been known to some as an aid to fight cancer as well as just keeping you healthy. In my own research into it, I found out that during World War I, soldiers would brew it when they couldn't get coffee, and the Russians have been drinking it like coffee for much longer. Anyway, I thought you might find it something you would probably like if you haven't tried it already. Taken straight with no sweetener, I found it has a mild, earthy vanilla tone. Uh, I've always thought was similar to uh, Rue Bus, an African red bush. Thanks again for all your hard work and dedication, Cliff. R. James Mitchell. Hey, thanks, James. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll look into that. Uh, I am back on coffee, and uh, it's only a cup or two a day. <laughs> I'd like to have more, but that's what I've restricted mine to. So if you want to send me an email, send it to cliff at earthancients.com, and uh, I'll read it. Thanks. So it's time to check in with our media critic, Adam Young. And, it, and Adam's not so much a critic as an uh, a individual who has done really good research and found books, uh, a lot of streaming media. When I say streaming media, that can be YouTube videos, that can be individual videos that are posted on individual websites, can be audio he covers a lot of ground, so uh, uh, these are real great ways for you, the listener, to pick up on new information that is out there, uh, that is available, and that continues your your education, continues your uh, understanding of all things known and unknown about Earth's ancient civilization. So, hey, Adam, welcome to the program. What do you got this week? Thanks, Cliff. Yeah, and I think, um, I don't know if I've mentioned, but my wife and I are both pretty obsessed with all things ancient, so ah. it's sort of a two-man operation. And, and you have a you have a new uh, baby, so maybe uh, the baby will be involved, too, I'm sure, because you'll probably take, <laughs> take them on uh, trips with you guys. <laughs> yeah, we'll give her a year or two, and then she'll catch up. <laughs> okay, good for you. So what's new? What's what did you what have you found for this week? I have some good ones this week. The first one is actually two short documentaries. They're each about one of them is about eight minutes. The other one's a little longer. They're both on this region of southwestern Russia, 
uh, kind of in the Caucasus. It's a region called cabergino balcaria So this is picture a little bit above Turkey is Georgia. Right above Georgia is this region. So it's close to it's close to all the uh, the things that the sites that seem to be in Turkey in that area of the world. The the thing in question is a, a mountain that seems to be composed of megalithic stones, and it is potentially covered with dirt or natural soil, probably by erosion, but the mountain itself is rumored to have been built by humans. The people of the region say that this is the only mountain in the entire area that is actually man-made. Everything else is natural. Hmm. If you look at a cross-section of this mountain, it resembles the scale and the scope of the Great Pyramid of Giza. And really? I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So these two documentaries, one's by megalips.org, the other one's by a group called Age of Disclosure. They're both from, I think, 11 or 12 months ago. They're about a year old. So it's an ancient, you know, again, it's an ancient megalithic site. And these two documentaries showcase some video footage and pictures of scientists and, and um, archaeologists, I guess you could say, descending into these chambers. They're tight. They're small. It doesn't seem like they're meant for people to go in them. They're vertical shafts that descend like two, 300 feet wow. into the mountain. And I think that's really interesting. If you think about the Giza pyramids or the ones in Egypt in general, none of them have stairs. They're not really meant for people to go in. At least that's what it looks like to me. The stairs that are in there were all built in the 1800s by like the British and the Egyptians. So it looks like that. It's really reminiscent of that giant, giant stones, tightly fitting, no mortar, all the typical telltale signs that we look for. Okay. Now, this and, first uh, one, this really first one's age, age of Disclosure, is is this a company or just one individual who's putting these out, this video? I don't know. I, I think it's a group of a few researchers. Megaliths.org is a few. It's, I think it's a husband and wife duo. The wife narrates most of their documentaries, and the husband mm-hmm. does some. The Age of Disclosure, that's not clear to me. But okay. they're both on YouTube, um, and they're both free, obviously. A lot of good pictures, a lot of beautiful scenery. Cool. The second one is available on Gaia. It was made in 2013. It's called The Talking, the Talking Rocks of the Aborigines. This is a little bit more mainstream. It's, um, it's essentially covering the rock art of the Aborigines, which this documentary itself says the Aborigines are 80,000 years old. The rock art's at least 40,000. So it's, one of, it's among the most ancient of all pictorial sort of human representations. It focuses on this Austrian scientist's work to preserve some of these these rock art, which which is, I think, over the last few thousand years or several millennia, they've been starting to erode and degrade due to natural things like moss and just wear and tear. So he's pioneered a, a way to sort of restore them. But the documentary sort of strays a little bit from that, and it focuses on this one elder who's a really interesting, well-spoken, well-educated uh, Aboriginal guy. Mm-hmm. He talks about a lot of the cultural elements, highly intelligent guy. He discusses how old their, their, their social structure and their fabric is, how they have passed down some of their stories, legends, and um, creation myths through the millennia via oral traditions and song and dance. So there's something to that. These are people that can give you a detailed map of that area of the Pacific Ocean, and what it looked like before the, the ocean currents rose by 400 feet. So they know where islands and mountain ranges are underwater, which are not visible now. 
yeah. right? So that you're talking 12,000 year old years old minimum. And I think there's, there's something very mystical, ancient and profound in that culture. So it's a good documentary. It's beautiful. It's simple and it's more mainstream than some of the other recommendations I've given, but it's, it's nice and it's eye opening. Okay. That sounds like a good one. Okay. And your final uh, choice for this week is the last one is by one of the greatest documentary filmmakers I think I've ever seen, Warner Herzog. He talks about the cave of forgotten dreams. Well, that's the name of the documentary anyway. It's about a cave in southern France. I think it, I think it's pronounced Chauvet. And uh, this is on Netflix. It was made in 2010. It says in the documentary it's the oldest known human pictures or the oldest known example of human art. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, you know, you have to take that with a grain of salt because the Aboriginals could be older. Egyptian stuff could be older. South American could be older. We don't really know. But the interesting part about this is it's a very traditional perspective on ancient culture. So this is what the scientific community is now saying is like the oldest um, form of human artistic expression. There's abstract art in here. There's highly complex uh, two-dimensional representations of, you know, three-dimensional space, which essentially says that whether or not these people were super advanced or not, the artists had practiced this stuff for a long period of time. They learned, they were taught, they were educated, they had a culture that was able to support artistic expression. And these were done on cave. The only reason we're really seeing this or they're still around is because it was deep underground, protected from the elements. Mm. So whether or not that was deliberate, it's kind of unclear. But the way Herzog tells the story, it's it's really a sort of a dreamlike kind of a uh, motif. And it's it's really interesting to kind of sit back and watch how modern science portrays some of this really ancient high culture. I would say great cave of forgotten dreams. We've, we've had uh, people talk about that part of France on the show. So this is going to be a, a good follow up. All right. These are great as always, uh, Adam, good picks. Um, and for those of you listening, this will be posted on the Facebook page, uh, under the banner for this week, uh, which is Dr. Dean Redden, who is our guest. And, uh, you can also see it on the earth ancients website, earthancients.com so if you're not into the facebook scene go to the website adam is always excellent and uh we'll talk to you next week thanks cliff nice talking with you Earth Ancients is supported in part by your subscriptions to Patreon. And Patreon is a way to, you know, give us a couple bucks a month to support uh, the work we do here. Uh, for as little as five bucks, you get access to galleries, uh, articles, and a lot of interviews that I don't publish uh, normally on the uh, network. So these are, uh, some of them are s- very loosely edited, so you get some insight into uh, more of the personalities of those uh, people 
that I am covering, that I am talking with. So uh, I appreciate as little as five bucks a month. And uh, and I want to thank the following people for uh, this last week who have become subscribers. Thank you to Carolyn uh, Markley, Charles Whiteside, uh, Karen First, Carol Milligan, and uh, Jermaine Lederman. Thank you, guys. And I appreciate it. And if you want to support us, I appreciate that too. You can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Earth Ancients for as little as five bucks a month. You support the work we do here and it helps me grow. I mean, this thing is uh, takes up uh, pretty much my my uh, week and we are reaching into the future. We have an all-star lineup for the spring as well as the summer. And as always, you can get your latest information on known and unknown civilizations right here on Earth Ancient. So please consider subscribing. It really helps us. The news comes from around the world, and you can see it on Facebook. Go to Facebook, Earth Ancients, and you'll see it there. The information automatically gets loaded into the Earth Ancients website, and you, you can go to the Facebook uh, page, uh, feed page on the website, which is earthancients.com, and you can see everything that is on here. The news is comprised of articles, tons of galleries, uh, and there's a lot of information that I post and that you send me to post each week. So it's really a great way to keep an eye on what's going on. This week is all about drones, drone photography. Uh, we start off with a Nubian pyramid flyover. It's in Central Africa. And this is uh, the pyramids that are there. They're smaller pyramids. And a lot of people think that these are uh, some of the early tests that would later go on and uh, be built much on a much larger scale in the, in the Giza Plateau of Egypt. And this flyover, uh, I've never seen it before. Somebody got permission, the uh, pilot got permission from the authorities to fly over these smaller pyramids. And they're beautifully constructed. They're about a third of the size, if not smaller, than the great uh, Cheops Pyramid, uh, the Pyramid cluster that is in uh, the Giza Plateau. But the drone flies over and really films uh, the rows of these pyramids, what they look like today, and some of the surrounding terrain that is still very curious to us uh, as to who these people were. Uh, we don't really have a date. It's guessed at between you know, three and 4,000 years, but it's probably significantly older. And it's really technology moving forward to see these pyramids in the current condition they're in. And they have been reconstructed. A lot of them have, fall, have were falling into disrepair, and they rebuilt them. So great, great uh, way to start off. Nubian pyramids, the flyover in uh, Central Africa. 
We have a small gallery from Hakim Algen, who is our, he's kind of our correspondent in Turkey. We've had him on a couple of times. Uh, these are these cut doorways, these massive doorways in uh, a place called Van City, Turkey. And he has sent us a small gallery of these monstrous doors. Now, some people think that these are stargates uh, that are uh, at one time maybe had some kind of a machinery attached to them. You see them in Peru, uh, but these are in Turkey. They're extremely old. There's no dates. The estimated date is 4,000 years, but uh, that's just an es- a guesstimate, basically. Now, when I say doorways, these are door structures that are cut into solid rocks, uh, into mountainsides. And uh, this series that I'm showing you are about 25 feet high by about 12 or 15 feet across. He doesn't give specific dimensions. I'm kind of guesstimating it based on the photographs. And uh, uh, they're perfectly cut. That's the other question, is they're cut with some level of precision that we don't understand. And again, they're very similar to what we see in Peru. Uh, So there's a lot of speculation as to what their purpose was. And Hakim has sent us a, a series of these Uh, doorways that you can see on the uh, Facebook page. By the way, Hakeem is going to be our guest in May. He is going to be going to a couple of these underground cities in Turkey, and we'll have a special with him uh, presenting not only photographs, but some extensive videos and a discussion on the underground cities of Turkey, why they were built, how many people they estimate uh, were kept there, And these are very big curiosities to us because it appears that at some point the people in that area went underground to uh, be protected from uh, what was thought were enemy invaders, but more likely because the earth was at that point thousands of years ago uninhabitable. So check that out. Uh, And then finally today, uh, we have additional geoglyphs that have been discovered in Peru, the Nazca region. And these uh, geoglyphs were just recently found using drone technology. Now, the drones flew up above. They were taking photographs of some new geoglyphs, uh, and they found additional geoglyphs with these drones. These geoglyphs are very unusual, thousands of years old. These are animals, intertwined animals, like there's there's, uh, monkeys and there's birds that are... uh, that are combined into very unusual forms. They're on a massive scale. Some of them are half a mile wide uh, by a similar length. And why would they create these? You can't really tell they're there unless you're way up above in the, in the sky. People like Eric Van Donegan believe that this is like a message from the aliens. Uh, the only way you could see these is to fly over a ship. I don't know about aliens. I think that they come from a period of our uh, ancient past when we did have, or the people there did have some form of technology to get up above the ground and, and look down. That's the only way you could do these. These are perfectly designed animals that are that are huge. And from the ground, you can't even tell. You have no idea they're there. So check it out. New geoglyphs discovered in Peru, Nazca region. Uh, and they are uh, presented to you by drone technology. 
All of our news are on the Facebook page, uh, Earth Ancients, or go to just earthancients.com and go to the Facebook feed and you can see all of them there. down through the ages that uh, you know people use concoctions spells divination different forms of what at that time was considered magic uh, and there's actually reports of mystery schools uh, in e- ancient greece other parts of the world where initiatives would learn and practice magic now i uh, those of you listening know that i have a, a big f- uh, interest in the maya the maya had initiations for people to, I guess, transcend levels of consciousness. We don't know if this was a form of magic or not. We'll ask our guest today. But mystery schools are not unknown to us in history. Today, we're going to talk about magic. And, and uh, uh, magic in the form of, could be shamanism, it could be reality creation. And my guest today says, yes, magic is actually real and usable. Uh, There are tools and techniques we can use to manifest what we want and when we want them. My guest, Dr. Dean Radden, is a chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences here in Northern California. He's a distinguished professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. And for four decades, he has been engaged in consciousness research. Now, I've tried to have Dean on the show a couple of times, and he's extremely popular. He wrote a book, a uh, bestseller actually, a few years ago called The Conscious Universe. Uh, he does touch a little bit on uh, magic in that form. But Dean, welcome to the program. Glad to have you finally on the fi- finally with us. <laughs> Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Yeah. I think one of the things I'm curious about... Uh, You've written a few books on consciousness. Uh, of course, I just mentioned one of the books, Consciousness Universe. What inspired you to write specifically about magic? Well, the the motivation for this book on magic, and we're talking about uh, not Harry Potter and not Harry Houdini. Right. We're talking about real magic, which is the title. The reason I decided to look into it is because for most of my career, I've been studying psychic phenomena in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. And so we, we look at telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, psychokinesis, and aspects of survival. All of these are, are experimental tests. We can show in the laboratory that these are real effects. But the after getting past the notion that these are real and repeatable effects, as best as science can tell... There's always a question left over at the end, which is, how does it work? And we don't have a good answer to that. And it's because we don't have a good answer that from a mainstream scientific perspective, these phenomena are still considered anomalies at best and impossible at worst. Hmm. 
And, and so we have a problem. We have almost 150 years of experimental evidence saying that the experiences that the majority of people have reported throughout history are in fact real, but we don't know how to explain it. So many of my colleagues, like myself, have, were brought up through the scientific tradition, which is from a philosophical basis, it's called materialism. It's, that's the, the, the lens through which we view reality. It's all about matter and energy and how things fit together. And we know that that, as a, as a way of viewing the world, is extremely powerful because it gives us all of these wonderful technologies that we have. So we have to be careful in then thinking about how, how do we come up with a model or an explanation for psychic phenomena that doesn't require us to throw away what we already know. And so this has been the problem. How do we do that? Well, from a science perspective, you'd say, well, maybe telepathy is something like radio. Maybe it works because there are, we know the brain is involved with electromagnetics, and we know that electromagnetics can be used for radio, so maybe it's radio. So that has been tested, and it's not radio. Mm -hmm. It's not electromagnetics. Uh, maybe precognition works because we know that the fundamental equations of physics are time-symmetric which means that it, from an elementary particle point of view, it doesn't know which direction of time it's going. So there's already some, some uh, possibility that in deep physics that our understanding of time is very different at that level than it is at, at the level of looking at your watch. And by the same token, you can do that same exercise with each one of the different kinds of psychic phenomena and come up with some sort of explanation that fits into what we already know, but then they don't, they don't work very well. They, we don't know how to take what amounts to fundamental physics and stick it into experience because all the psychic phenomena are about experiences that we have, and we don't understand what experience is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds strange to say that, but we don't really understand the nature of consciousness, which is all about experience. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know what it can do. We, we just don't know. Okay. So, why magic then? Because within the magical traditions, and I'm talking here about both Eastern and Western esoteric traditions that go back as far back as history, at least 10,000 years, maybe more. My, my goal then was to say, well, if the scientific model is not working very well to describe these kinds of phenomena, maybe other people in history had a better sense of what was going on. So where do we look? Well, the esoteric traditions have been around forever, and all of them accepted that psychic phenomena and magic and mysticism were all part of the same thing. They was part of their cosmologies. And those cosmologies never went away. It's not as though ancient ideas about magic have gone away. They've just taken a different form today. Mostly it comes out in terms of entertainment. So when you look at the, how entertainment addresses notions of magic and special mental powers, it accounts for, I'm just going to make up a number here, something like 30 to 40% of television and movies in terms of the themes that are explored. It's a multi, multi-billion dollar industry using these themes all the time. So whenever you see something like that, you see a huge public interest and the topic, you know that there's, there's something going on. People are resonating with these ideas. Okay. So, so that tells me 
And if we look into these traditions and try to use them as a clue to tell us why do we why did they think magic worked? And can that give us a clue to explaining today how psychic phenomena work? So that was the motivation for doing a book on, on magic. And, and you're, uh, uh, just to define it, you're a, a parapsychologist, correct? Is that the term? I prefer to think of myself as, as a psychologist okay. who specializes in psychic phenomena. Ah. And the reason, even though I am, in fact, the president of the Parapsychological Association, which is a scientific organization, when I, use, when I say the word parapsychology, in most people's minds, they immediately think of paranormal investigator. And that is not what I am, because the image of that, unfortunately, are people doing ghostbusting on TV. So <laughs> yeah. ghostbusting on TV, like any reality show, is not the way the world actually is. It's, of course, reality TV is an oxymoron. Uh, I have done field investigations, like the show on television, but the ratio of getting something interesting versus the amount of time that you spend is about 1,000 to 1. Hmm. Spend 1,000 hours to get one hour of something interesting. And so I pretty much gave up on that because you can easily freak yourself out by going to some place that has a history of being haunted at 3 o'clock in the morning – but it just doesn't yield very much data. Okay. And I'm a, I'm a data-driven guy, so I, I like to create stuff in the laboratory. It's a lot more mm -hmm. efficient. Okay. Let's, let's define what it means uh, when you say magic. Most people, when, when you say magic, consider that to be card tricks or sleight of hand, or kind of a con game. What, what are you referring to when you say magic? Okay, three types. There is... Uh, fictional magic, that's Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. There is fake magic, that's stage magicians or illusionists or mentalists. And then there's real magic, which is the thing that those other two are pointing at. So the real magic is the concept that falls into three categories. There is divination, mm -hmm. which involves tarot cards and the I Ching and uh, mirror gazing, that whole thing. There is force of will in which you focus your intention and cause things to happen in the world. And there is theurgy, which is evoking or communicating with disembodied spirits. Those are the three categories of magic that have come down through the ages. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about theurgy uh, in, in a, a later portion of the show, simply because that gets into channeling which I've been fascinated in uh, for, for years, but a lot of people just don't understand. But it, it's, it's a phenomenon that's been around for thousands and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. um, let's look at uh, magic from a cultural uh, point of view. You mentioned that there are, uh, in your book, you're, there's uh, hundreds of book, uh, books on spells, magical spells uh, by ancient, medieval, and modern magicians. Do we know that these spells actually worked? Because to really... Uh, chronicle them in this manner would make me think that they were functional in some way. Well, I, I view spells and rituals as written in the grimoires, so-called, the Book of Spells, mm -hmm. uh, as ways of focusing one's attention and, at, and intention. That's what all rituals and ceremonies are about. They're about how do you focus your intention to make something happen 
in a way that is not in your ordinary state of awareness. Because none of this magic, none of the psychic phenomena, they don't happen at the everyday state of awareness. They happen when you're dreaming, when you're taking psychedelics, when you're meditating, when you're ill, and so on. They're, these are all non-ordinary states of awareness, and I, I can explain why I think that is the case. So, but, so when you, you look at a book of spells, part of it is not simply saying words. It's saying words under special conditions. And the special conditions, like making a pentagram, doing a candle, meditating, chanting, whatever, all of it is designed to pull you out of your ordinary state of awareness. And I think that's the key. It's not the words. It's the ritual that goes around the words. Okay. So if, if I understand you right, uh, as an example, in your book, you, you talk about uh, magic love spells, which were very big during the uh, Elizabethan period and even before that. Someone would... Uh, the intent of the individual is what the manifestation would come from rather than uh, someone putting an elixir in someone's soup or something. Is that what you're suggesting? Well, that combined with the belief, right? So if you're doing something unusual, like saying a spell in ancient Aramaic or in Latin or something like that, and it may mm. take a long time to figure out how to say it correctly and all that, that means that you're spending an enormous amount of time, both attention and intention, for this particular purpose. And then if it also involves making a concoction that involves bat wings and who knows what, all of it is becomes a big constellation of focused attention. Mm -hmm. And we know from laboratory studies that that's basically all it takes. It takes a very clear intention and very clear focused attention to make things happen. Mm. And it's not easy. Right? I mean, you ask anybody who's learned to meditate, and they'll tell you that to maintain a one-pointed focus of attention is not easy at all. So all of the ritual and the, the ceremonies and all that are, are designed, in a sense, to, to help you focus your attention. Is it your understanding that some of these early spells were, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, a, a form of, of affirmation? Uh, where you somebody would repeat a spell over a period of time, like an affirmation to set up or something like that? That's exactly what they were. And that's why even today people are still using the same techniques. Hmm. So the, uh, the whole genre of affirmations literature, it's gigantic. Uh, it is based on these same esoteric principles. I mean, you, you can go look back at the magical practices of the Egyptians five or 6,000 years ago, hmm and find parallels in books that you can buy today that were written last year. It, it all is related to the same notion that you use your imagination to, to imagine what you want, you use your focused attention to maintain that in a stable way, and then you push it with your intention, and that makes things happen. So it, simply at the level of spellcasting, it doesn't say why it happens, but that that's another aspect of this story of, of why then would it happen? And that is also contained within the esoteric literature. And that's why I was interested in it. But the thing that I have to find, I mean, I'm really curious about this is, is if they are manifesting their intentions through their magic, is this chronicled in some way? Is it just a book of spells or is it a book of spells and the, and the, and the, and the probability of success is high with certain spells or whatever because of the, nature of, uh, of of the human condition. In other words, if someone's in crisis, it's not going to work so good because they're, they're worried about their their depression or they're worried about their situation. 
whereas somebody who's in a positive state can manifest quicker. Is that is that mentioned in those early spell books? Well, it's a very good question. The the grimoires almost never say that this this spell is seventy percent effective, and this one's twenty two percent effective. They don't they didn't work that way. That that's a modern concept of okay. testing. So I think we we need to think about spells in two ways. There there's a, a natural magic which is pre scientific ways of dealing with the natural world, and some of those are spells. Mm-hmm. So for example, if somebody had a sore throat and back. Uh, 3,000 years ago, they would look at a book of spells and they say, well, you need to take this kind of stuff and mix it with that kind of stuff and then you gargle with it and blah, blah, blah. What they didn't know at the time, but they knew empirically, was that if you take a certain kind of mold, it might have penicillin in it. And the penicillin, which we, of course, now understand as, as an antibiotic, it would help to to fix a sore throat. So some of that was natural magic. It was simply found by people trying things over long periods of time and finding that some chemicals, although they didn't know they were chemicals at the time, or some antibiotics, they did stuff that was useful. So that became the pharmaceutical business. At the time, it was thought of mostly as herbalism. By the same token, uh, alchemy started the same way. You mix certain kinds of pieces of dirt together and you can make certain kinds of metals. That was originally considered to be natural magic. And it was it was because the underlying chemistry of it was not known, hmm. but that became what we currently think of as chemistry, and astrology and astronomy have the, have a similar background as well. What the these ancient natural magic practices had in common, both alchemy and astrology and herbalism, was that the intention of the practitioner was a very important component. You don't see that today in the way that that these practices are done as chemistry and as astronomy and as the pharmaceutical business, but that is their origin. Mm. So the magic part of it always had to do with the state of the consciousness, the mental side of these practices. And then you're no longer dealing with simply the chemical properties of something or the natural antibiotic properties. Then it was really what I would call real magic. It was about the mental side. The mental side of it is, by its nature, far less reliable than the material side. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's partially related to psychological reasons. People are different and the environment affects people and all kinds of things like that. But it goes beyond that, I think, because we normally don't walk around worrying about our unconscious too much. But we know that the unconscious is a very strong modulator of what you do and how you think. We know that because otherwise people wouldn't smoke and drink too much or eat too much. Right. You're, you have self-defeating aspects of your awareness that is below the level of your, of your everyday awareness. I, I see that in myself because I, I'm a, a sugarholic and I, I like cookies. So if, if there is a cookie within arm's reach… I will find my arm reaching for it before I even realize what I'm doing. Yeah. And and I will even try to stop the cookie from approaching my mouth, and I really have to struggle to make it not not end up in my mouth. <laughs> so so this is a you can see this this uh, internal struggle. Mm. And now if you imagine that you're doing a spell, you're having the same struggle. You want something to happen at a conscious level, but maybe you don't at an unconscious level. And because of that struggle, 
this this is one of the reasons why it's very difficult to say this spell is going to work 72% of the time because in principle it might work 100% of the time if you are completely coherent but we're not we we have multi layers of our awareness and our intentions and part of the reason for doing rituals and lots of repetition chanting and all the rest is to try to push the intention very far down down in a metaphorical sense into a deeper level of consciousness because that's where the magic happens. It does not happen at the level of everyday awareness. So are you referring to the unconscious as the real governor or uh, the superconscious or the higher self? What, what would be the area that really, as you call it, is the driving force behind manifestation? It's an awareness which is not where your everyday mind is. Some people will call that a higher self. Okay. Uh, I, I tend to think of it more as the everyday awareness is like the surface of the ocean. Hmm. It's it's up high. It's the surface of the ocean. But there's a, the rest of consciousness, which includes the unconscious and subconscious and preconscious and all the rest of it, and maybe even the higher consciousness. It's all below the ocean. And we don't know how far down that goes, but we know it's gigantic. Hmm. So through magical practices through meditation drugs and so on you can learn to lower your level of awareness in this metaphorical sense you can bring it to areas that are normally inaccessible and this is why meditation among other reasons is so difficult because you're now you're battling your own demons so to speak right. you you come face to face with awareness to aspects of yourself that might be self-defeating that might be frightening and so on, but that's it's down there where where these these effects are happening. Hey, I want to take a short break here and talk to you about away luggage. This is a first class luggage at a coach price. Pretty cool stuff. If you're like me and you travel for business and uh, pleasure, it is the next generation of super suitcases and travel luggage. It's made from premium German polycarbonate. You know, super strong. Uh, the interiors feature all kinds of support. The wheel system allows you to move the uh, suitcase in and out of your car uh, to the checkout area around the airport, wherever you're going. Uh, so the wheels are much better than normal. Some of the other features on this are a power system to power your iPad, your phone. It's built in power charger that you can build into the actual system itself. It's got a lifetime warranty. That's really hard to get. And Away is offering a 100-day free trial. Get it. You can use it. And if you like it, great. Keep it. Or if not, you can return it. They're offering a special package this month. You'll get 20 bucks off if you go to awaytravel.com forward slash earthancients. And use promo code EARTHANCIENTS uh, when you check out. Now, that is a $20 discount. Go to awaytravel.com forward slash EARTHANCIENTS and use promo code EARTHANCIENTS. These are very unique. It's the next generation of uh, personal travel luggage. And I'm looking at the uh, carry-on right now. It's very, very cool. I dig the... Uh, the built-in power supply is is amazing. That's a brilliant idea. 
this is the really uh, the future, this type of a luggage. So awaytravel.com forward slash earthancients and use that promo code earthancients. Really cool stuff. Let's talk a little bit more about some of this ancient history that you feature in this book. The uh, uh, These early mystery schools, the Greek Aleutian Mystery School started at 1500 BC and uh, lasted forever. What? What would they teach in these schools that is, uh, I mean, is it magic courses or is just a combination? And what what would be the, uh, that's part one. Part two is what would be the criteria for the initiative to, to actually get into this school? Well, in the, in the Greek mystery schools were very democratic in that uh, both citizens and slaves could, were allowed to take the, what's called the lesser rites. Mm-hmm. So the lesser rites of the Eleusinian mystery schools uh, involved a theatrical allegory of what was thought to happen after death. So it was basically a, a, a play, a play that showed what happened after death. Uh, that was available to almost anyone. I think I think the only ones who were excluded were murderers, people <laughs> on the equivalent of death row. They weren't allowed yeah. to to do that, but almost everyone else was. Uh, which which makes it an, uh, strangely democratic. The the greater rights were only uh, reserved for special people, and they probably involved psychedelic drugs. You don't know that for sure, but they did drink a special concoction, mm-hmm. which one can make a case that it might have included something like LSD, natural form of LSD in it, through the ergot and the grain. And that was said to not simply be a play, but to give them an experience of what it was like in the afterlife. So you can imagine, well, actually it's hard to imagine, but imagine that you were back in ancient Greece and you were taking LSD or taking psilocybin or something like that. They they would, because of the culture and because of the, the mystery rites that they were going through, they could easily interpret the the psychedelic state as actually revealing what it's like to to be dead, to to be surviving somehow after death. We know that uh, psychedelics like uh, psilocybin, given to ordinary people today under the right conditions, are oftentimes described as the most profound experience in their entire life. And so you can see why these mystery schools would persist, mm. because people, after one experience, lose any fear of death. It's like a near-death experience without having to have the near-death part. And then it would, it would change the notion of what it would mean to be alive, right? If you completely lose any fear of death, your sense of being alive and purpose and all that would dramatically change. And so that's why these practices went on for something like a thousand years. And almost every culture has had its own version of a mystery school, yeah. except for the modern times. In modern times, we tried to start that in the 1960s, and it didn't work too well. Mm-hmm. You know, you also mentioned uh, the Greek historian Pliny the Elder, and he authored a book uh, called Natural History, uh, which includes magic. Now, was it an everyday common uh, function to add magic to lifestyles, or was it only a class-driven kind of a uh, practice that the elite were using because i mean to 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 have it in this encyclopedia makes me think that it's something that is uh, thought of as quite you know used quite regularly oh everyone used magic 
Because remember, magic at the time was simply things that seemed to work that we didn't understand hmm. or that they didn't understand. And it was the it was saturated. For people who were not very well educated, it was all they had. Okay. For people who were educated, they knew because they could work with people who had some wisdom that some aspects of magic worked. But remember, at that time, the the distinction between something like herbalism and mental magic was mixed. It wasn't as cleanly separated as I've I've been trying to mm-hmm. describe as divination, a force of will, and so on. We have we have more language to be able to describe those practices than they did. Okay. But, I mean, back then, uh, I have a sense that the amulets were very be- a big, uh, spells or divination was big. What else was used uh, at that time frame uh, that would be considered magic? I mean, is I mean, sacrificing animals, is that considered magic or no? That's more- oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, all of the religious practices, the, the concepts of what the, the gods could do and their presence in people's lives, all of it was considered magic. Okay. And by the way, the, the, the notion of amulets and sympathetic magic and so on are just as popular today as they were thousands of years ago. Okay. I mean, you, you can get a grimoire on your, on your cell phone and, or your smartphone in, in the minute. Yeah. I mean, these are the same practices <laughs> that people use. And if and you go to any, any kind of psychic fair or any kind of big New Age type of fair, there's all kinds of stuff being sold that was basically exactly the same as these ancient Greeks were buying. Hmm. Yeah, it's intriguing. Let's let's move forward. Uh, in the late 16th century, we have the Freemasons, the Knights of Templar. Uh, these were uh, basically groups that were supporting and, and kind of making it secret in a way because the church was coming down on them quite hard. Now, Let's talk real quickly about the church. The church is not really predisposed into, this would be kind of considered paganism, wouldn't it, the, the, the use of magic? Right, and purely as a power, it's a power struggle, mm-hmm. right? So the, the, the Catholic Church at the time, or the, the later the Holy Roman Church, became the authority on everything in medieval times in, in Europe. Uh, in order to maintain authority, anything which is not considered within the church was automatically def- defined as being heretical. And so that included a lot of pagan practices. In some cases, as a strategic move, pagan practices would be brought within the church. So we see those today as things like Christmas and Halloween and Valentine's Day and so on. Lots and lots of things that we do today which we might consider to be part of the church, even though the church is fractured into many pieces, those kinds of things were definitely pagan practices. But they, because they're now put within the umbrella of the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church, uh, now they're okay. Mm-hmm. So the, the interesting thing about the church is that they completely believed in magic. There was no doubt that this stuff worked. They might have interpreted it in, in supernatural terms, but nevertheless, there was no doubt that it worked, except that you had to be uh, given special authority in order to, to practice it. That's what the priesthood was about. Mm. And the reason they were so dead set against the, the pagans doing the same thing is because if you happen to have somebody out there who could do what Jesus did, they might start drawing people away from the church. Mm. So it immediately had to be stopped. It were actually, there were two things that could happen. It had to be stopped, which is why the Inquisition was out there doing it. Or it had to be brought within the fold. Mm. 
one or the other. So people doing miraculous things were called saints. So now it's okay. People doing miraculous things that were not saints were stopped in, in graphic ways. Yeah, the Inquisition is uh, was an excuse to kill thousands of women, thousands of people who were just natural healers and herbalists. Uh, it, it got crazy. It just uh-huh. totally got crazy. And and you're making me think now. This is the uh, this is the magic. The magic is is evil at some point. And how long did that go on for? Where where the church was just uh, overseeing um, uh, the use of of uh, paganism and uh, uh, the magic that went along with it. It wasn't really just paganism. Paganism was is kind of an umbrella term that covered anything that was not part of church authority. Mm. So it included other religions as well. We see echoes of that up to the present day. This is why you, you have places on the earth that have, even within the same religion, that have slightly different spins on them where people are at each other's throats. Mm. So religion has always been a... It has a mystical side to it, which I think is where the, the core belief comes from. Uh, but the the public side of religion is a, is all about social control. And it's always been that way, and it doesn't seem like it's going to go away anytime soon. Uh, if you have people who, as a fundamentalist might, they literally believe in the surface story of the religion, you're asking for trouble. Mm-hmm. Because th- these people will defend it to the to their life. Yeah. And they will kill people as a result. So it, if they, if they don't, can't get out of that mindset, uh, then, then that's where problems begin. So this is one of the reasons – this is a, a little bit off the, the, the topic here. But I think one of the reasons why within a fundamentalist mindset that you don't want to be exposed to too much education – yeah. Because the moment you are, the moment you start reading history and you learn about how, how things actually work, it that that also becomes something which challenges authority. And mm-hmm. so you can't have that. And that's why you find people who are essentially in cults who only know what's inside the bubble. And I think it's a pity. Yeah. I feel sorry for those people. Uh, but there are plenty of them around. Yeah, there is a, a level of... Um I don't know, you, you use lack of education, but a lack of insight, a lack of uh, exposure to other possibilities that a fundamentalist doesn't want to take in because there is it does question what they're, they're believing in. Let's move forward to uh, present day, if we can, and what, what I term, well, what you term, you know, magic in present tense and you talk about two skills that you outline, and the skills to be a magician or to use magic is attention and intention. Can you explain the two and why they're so important? Well, attention is, is sometimes, you, uh, we could use the metaphor of a flashlight. So your awareness simply is uh, the ability to know anything. It's the ability to have experience. Mm -hmm. The attention is like being in a dark room and having a flashlight and illuminating only a little piece of it. So you can focus your your awareness on one particular thing. And that's that's not necessarily an easy skill to do, 
but there are a lot of people doing it. Somebody who's playing a video game for a couple of hours is tightly attending to one thing and not paying attention to anything else. So that's attention. Okay. The intention is I want. It's to want something. Mm-hmm. I want this outcome. I, I desire that. So it's simply a matter of projection of will through the attention. So that's that's what I mean by attention and intention. Okay. And that's what you see echoing all the way through history. That was the essence of magic. Right. So the, the consciousness gets involved on multiple scales when we start intending something to happen is what you're 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 suggesting and i i would imagine that your work as a scientist uh the the idea the the use of intention is uh, is it measurable Uh, when someone is intending something can you measure it and and see what the success is well you can see it in a from a standard perspective in things like uh, neuroscience that the, the brain activity changes when people are attending and intending. Mm-hmm. So there definitely are neural correlates of intention. In the laboratory, if we're studying a, a psychic effect, like, a, uh, like psychokinesis, which is a mind-matter interaction, you can measure the effect of intention on a, a, a distant physical system. So the systems have, that have been used go the range from uh, elementary particles to bacteria to electronic circuits to small animals to big animals to human behavior and physiology, the whole range. And yes, you can see that all of those systems can be modulated a little bit uh, through the act of somebody paying intention, attention and intention at them. Mm-hmm. So in the in a vernacular... Something like the feeling of being stared at, which is reported by lots of people, that is a combination of attention, someone's staring, with some intention, like I want to talk to you, or I like you and I want to be your friend, or something like that. So that can be tested under laboratory controls, and we find that that is a real thing. People can feel that kind of high-focused intention. You know, it's funny. I was just thinking that here you are in this uh, laboratory, this unique uh, place, uh, Noetic Sciences, up in uh, Northern California. What you have amazing results that you're getting from a lot of these tests. Hell, you could put together the, a book of <laughs> magic, or uh, you wouldn't call it magic. That's just for present day. You call it uh, uh, the manifester or the manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> of uh, of intention and you know you can you know this works good with creating cars this one's good for relationships this one's good for you know what i mean i'm just I thinking see. yeah like a modern grimoire yeah <laughs> yeah the, we don't from a from a lab perspective we we don't know that yet right so we okay. haven't tested uh different rituals that you could assign to say well this one would work for a car, and this one would work for love, mm-hmm. right? So that's that is the way that the grimoires are set out, uh, but we we haven't advanced that far yet uh, in, in the modern sense. Okay, well, that's 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 uh, intriguing. Let's get into an area that I'm fascinated in, which is meditative practice. You spend a good portion of a, of uh, one of your chapters outlining uh, the importance of meditation and what it brings to cultivating the perfect environment to manifest uh, magic. Now, why is 
meditation so important? Because in the magical tradition, the uh, advanced studies will always say that the state of consciousness that you want to be in to make the magic effective is called gnosis. It's the same root word as noetic. It means to know with certainty without knowing how you know. So it's like intuition, except that it carries a sense of certainty that is usually correct with what you know. It also has a connotation that this is a form of awareness that is much closer to the mystical state of unity than the everyday sense of awareness. Hmm. Uh, this is the state that uh, the gurus will oftentimes try to describe to their disciples it's difficult to describe because it's an experience that doesn't have language that matches the everyday world. But in meditation in particular, you, you can experience that. Some psychedelic drugs will push you there pretty quick, too. So one of the, the nice phrases I like from the Indian sage Ramana Maharshi is that somebody asked him, how should, how should we treat other people? And his response was, there are no other people. So from the state of gnosis, you, you get into a non-dual form of awareness where there's no distinctions between things anymore. Mm. There's no distinction between the awareness that you, you call me and uh, some universal awareness from which the universe arises. There's no distinction between here and there or now and then or anything else. And it's from that state of awareness that manifestations can occur or seeing through space and time can occur because it come those things that state is before the physical world and so if you're before the physical world meaning outside of space and time and and a some in a place where from that state the universe itself emerges you can make all kinds of things happen you can almost literally create a reality. You, you can f make reality what you wish, but again, this is not happening at the state of, I, I, I want a car, right? Everyday state. Mm -hmm. It's from a much, much deeper state where there's n no distinction anymore between your awareness and the awareness of the universe itself. How do you suggest that people, because I meditate, I, I, how do you suggest or what are you suggesting that people do to manifest in a meditative state because when you're meditating you know uh you're not really focused on anything in fact you're not really supposed to uh but if you're in a meditative state maybe you can uh, i don't know what are you suggesting to, to how do you use the meditative state as a as a uh, manifester well so this the, my book supernormal uh is all about this from the eastern esoteric perspective okay because part of the classical yoga practice is uh, that you you meditate you do physical postures and all that all of the physical side of yoga which is mostly the way that it's seen in the west today all of it was designed in such a way as so that you could sit still for eight hours a day that's what it was for mm. and the reason for that is that you want to get your body out of the way so that your mind can dive deep without hurting without feeling funny, without being hungry and all the rest. So the mental side of yoga is really what the traditional aspect of yoga is about. It's about going into the state of samadhi, which is the, like uh, 
there are many layers of these deep mystical states. It's one of the initial stages of very deep mystical states. So you want to be able to go into samadhi at will, stay in samadhi, and then once you could do that, you can then start practicing the siddhis. Well, the siddhis are, are a Sanskrit word which roughly means attainment or perfection. And in the yogic tradition, when you are able to sustain samadhi long enough and you put a, just a slight twinge of intention while in that state, this is the state of non-dual awareness. You can also, you're still there, there's a piece of you which is still around, you can put an intentional spin on it. And that's what creates the power, the city. So an example is, one of the most elementary cities is uh, the ability to see past, present, and future all at the same time. We would might call it something like uh, precognition and retrocognition, something like that. Okay. So you go into samadhi, you then simply contemplate the idea of causality. That's that's a way of interpreting how how you would do this practice of of that particular city. Mm-hmm. And by contemplating the notion of causality, which has to do with events in time, you become it. You become, because there's no distinctions, you become causality. You become the thing which makes events unfold in time. And then, once you become it, the future and the past and the present all are basically the same thing because you now are it. It's not that you know it, you are the thing itself. Mm. So the nice thing about the about classical yoga, and I'm talking about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, is that he gives a recipe about 25 different powers that, that can result, uh, all of which require to be in the state of samadhi, all of which require contemplation or use of intention to become something so in the state if you wanted to uh, become invisible for example you become you you can go into samadhi and you you become the idea of being perceived i've heard about these kinds of uh uh, these transformations that people have and what you're describing is just it's mind-blowing it's it's really uh it is transcending the physical. It's it's magic. <laughs> well, and so this this is why the the essence of magic really has to do with what we think consciousness is. Hmm. You see, the reason why it seems so strange is because we're so used to dealing with because we live in the physical world. Our language is based on physicality. It's yeah. based on on clock time. It's based on common sense. But these experiences are so far away from common sense because they involve a different mode of existence almost that, of course, something like, like a magical manifestation would blows your mind because that's not the way the world is supposed to work. Well, that is the way that the world works. It's just that we're not paying attention to it because we don't live there very often and, and we don't have language that describes it very well. But that's what all of the magical traditions say, and more importantly, as I say again and again in my book on real magic, we know from laboratory tests that that actually does work. That is what we see happening in laboratory tests. Mm-hmm. In a laboratory, the magic that we see is very, very weak. It's, it's tiny stuff. Yeah. But because we're in a scientific sense, you can do lots of repeated trials and lots of people under very highly controlled conditions – 
even though something is very small, it's a very small effect, you can gain very high confidence that it is real and not a mistake or chance. Hmm. So we know that it's real, but we, we have yet to have Merlin levitate in the laboratory. Yeah. So we, we know in principle it's real. We just don't find people who are willing to come to the lab who can do the big stuff. As a scientist, are we supposed to, are, are, are we on an evolutionary path to be using these techniques to manifest uh, a better life? Is that something that we, we, that, that we think about as a scientific uh, community? I think if the human species can survive long enough, yes. Oh, uh, th okay. There's a good chance that we're going to make ourselves extinct. Yeah. Because, I mean, we just, just look at the news and you'll see all kinds of reasons why collectively we're not doing such a great job. Mm -hmm. So I think the w one way of looking at this is that evolution has shaped the human organism to, to not be very good at magic. Hmm. And, for, and probably for good reason. As a physical organism, we want to survive. Our brains are, have been shaped by evolution, so we pay very close attention to here and now, and not to anything else. Well, magic is all about everywhere else. It's not, not so much about here and now, here and now, and not only here and now, but a very, very tiny slice of what your senses are actually presenting to you here and now. We're constantly making stereotyped fast decisions so we don't accidentally get eaten by the tiger. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of years of evolution that have shaped us in this way. So the reason why ordinary awareness, which is the one that's keeping you safe from the tigers, that is the worst possible place to be if, if you're interested in psychic awareness or, or in magic. It's these other domains where, as a sentient being, which in some respects may be made out of consciousness, you need to have that realization. You need to be able to work in that domain in order to start doing the big magic. But fortunately, being a sentient creature, we can all do a small amount of magic. And that, and if, if that's why we have all these books on affirmations, because it still works. It just doesn't work so that you can make a gold Mercedes appear just on a whim. It takes more work than that. But let's, I mean, would you say that a, a lot of this uh, divination and affirmations and these other things is a hit and miss? I mean, you get good at it. I mean, obviously, you know, like, hey, I want to get that parking spot, so I'm going to ask my uh, parking genie and, you know, send that out. But, I mean, how do we how do we know when someone's successful uh, other than once in a while they get a manifestation? It's like, it's, it's to my mind, it's a hit and miss proposition. And, and that could go back to our the evolution. You just said yourself, we're not supposed to be magicians because god knows what we manifest we'd all be crazy <laughs> doing all kinds of nutty things you know uh i can think of some star trek episodes where they're dealing with people that manifest the reality without a thought but it's a simple thought i mean but uh, what is this an evolution that we're dealing with you kind of touched on that well first of all people have different talents so it, we can watch the olympics and marvel at things that people can do that we cannot do right uh, if we were to decide what is real based on what is true on average, we would say that the highest that any human can jump is four feet. But the, the world record is eight feet. So the vast majority of people on Earth cannot jump eight feet, but in the Olympics they can. So by the same token, 
uh, not everybody's going to become a, a musical genius or an artist or whatever. This, these all take special talents. The same is true for magical skills. Some people have natural talent that allows them to get into these states of consciousness, and they can do amazing things. Mm -hmm. I think we would see them as people who are extremely successful in whatever line of work that they happen to be doing. So they, they are going to be very successful uh, movie producers, and they'll be inventors, and they'll be whatever. Whatever they want to do, they're going to be successful. They might appear as being very lucky. Now, I, I know lots of people who, in private, will admit that they rely very strongly on their intuition, and these are all very successful people. Sometimes the, the success can be measured in terms of that they're billionaires. Sometimes that they're just incredibly happy mm. and may not have a lot of money, but they're, they're crazy happy kind of people. So... I think that the when when you look at that all of humanity, you can create a bell-shaped curve, and put people at the far right end of that curve as being naturally talented. They understand that talent, they can use that talent, and they do. And so those are like magicians out there who are able to do it. And maybe they're aware of what they're doing, maybe they're not, but nevertheless, they're going to be exceptionally good at what they do. But the rest of us, in the same sense that I, I can learn how to play golf, I know what the mechanics of it is and I know what the idea of it is, but I, I neither have the talent nor do I want to practice hours a day to maintain the talent. So I'm not going to be very good at it. Well, the same is true in magic. I, I, know, I know what the mechanics are. I know that it requires an enormous amount of practice. Uh, I can do it to, to a small extent, but it's going to look pretty weak. And for most people, most of the time, that's how it's simply going to be. So is it an evolutionary process? I would say that it, it is in the sense that anything that, that science has looked at over a long enough period of time transitioned from magic into something that we can now use because we understand. I see. So can we take these ancient ideas, ancient skills, ancient practices and learn enough about them so they're no longer considered magic, but considered a new aspect of science where we actually gain a certain degree of control. I would say if we did that now, we would destroy ourselves in a minute for exactly the reason you were saying, that our, if your whim turns into reality, we don't have very good control over our whims. Mm -hmm. So if you're in traffic and everybody's a magician, look out. <laughs> I mean, yeah, road rage is bad enough, but if you start yeah. seeing cars disappear and other yeah. cars are turning into mushrooms, I mean, that that's not a nice scenario. So <laughs> yeah. I think there, there may be, uh, I'm not saying that there's a, there's a plan here that's preventing us from being too magical too soon, but it's possible that as, as homo sapiens, the, the particular embodiment that we are at right now, is not capable, except in very rare cases, to be able to use magic in a way that is not going to destroy us. Maybe we need to be homo superior. Mm -hmm. Maybe we need a, a couple of other additional evolutionary pushes before as what amounts to becoming uh, getting out of our adolescence as a species and becoming more mature about it. And I mean, you, you don't need to look very far in history to see that we are not mature as a species. Which is why it's so dangerous. Yeah, and I, this I also have a thing, a chapter in the book on 
the, the issue of extraterrestrial life. I, I think, like a lot of people do today, that the, the universe is saturated with living, intelligent creatures. Yeah. Well, so then where are they? Well, if I were a, a creature a couple thousand years or million years ahead of where we are today, I would look at us on Earth and say, I, why would I want to deal with these babies? These, these are not well-developed creatures yet. Leave them alone, and if they survive, they will learn, among other things, that the way that you talk in the universe is through telepathy, because it's, it's before space-time. Like, space-time is already a construct that you don't need if you're a highly advanced alien creature. Uh, and at, at the point where humanity or whatever we are at that point develops, where we, we understand what we're call, calling magic, and we know that we can manipulate reality in unusual ways, but we understand it at that point, that's the day that the alien brothers show up, right? Because that's they say, okay, yeah, now a- you're mature enough to join us. But mm-hmm. before that, it's like taking a bunch of babies and putting them on the board of a bank. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and we're we're also a reactive race. You know, we're going to shoot you down if we don't, if you can't figure you out, or you don't communicate in our style. <laughs> so, yeah, the so vast majority, yeah. the vast majority of science fiction, especially, is portrayed in comic books and yeah. the movies today, is all about the bad aliens coming to get us. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that that's that's fear, basically. That's a, a very elementary way of thinking about. The nature of intelligence and nature of other beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could talk a whole uh, series on uh, the UFO questions and uh, why they're not here. I think they are here to a degree, but they're not here in any high level uh, of communication uh, to the masses. Let's talk about a few things. We're almost at the end of our time here. Can we talk about a few items that are considered present day? Magic, and maybe just highlight a couple, like uh, as an example, uh, scripting for our daily, weekly, and beyond uh, is a form of affirmation. Can you talk a little bit about that, or maybe one or two other uh, topics that we consider uh, manifesting magic ma- manifestation? You mean, are you talking about the practice of magic? Yeah, practice. Pra- yeah. Practical, app- so practical applications. The two, yeah. the two types of practical magic I talk about in the book are writing magic mm-hmm. and sigil magic. They're, they're the oldest forms of magical practice. Uh, many books you can find out there today are talking about them because it seems to work. In fact, one of the books that I recommend is called It Works. And this is a, a book that came out in, I think, the 1920s or 30s. And it basically is a its a tiny little red book that gives a series of steps on how to do writing magic. So the steps are uh, know what you want. You need a very clear goal that, that will uh, encapsulate the thing that you want, whatever it happens to be. Uh, the second thing is – oh, so you write it down. You write down what you want on a piece of paper. And I recommend that uh, – I, I borrowed this from a magician who, who has this idea that while you're writing what you want, you imagine that the surface of the paper is universal consciousness. It simply is that. And so the ink of the pen represents your unconscious desire. So as you write your goal on the piece of paper, you imagine that you're casting your unconscious intention onto the medium itself that creates and sustains reality. So you just hold that as a thought. You are writing onto the surface of the thing that is sustaining everything what you want. 
the next step is that you now review what you want. You review it every day. Look at what you wrote down. You don't want to dwell on it too much because you're going to get anxious. So you'd simply review what you wrote down every day. Then you also maintain secrecy about it because these these things are very fragile. If you have if you tell somebody what you want in terms of a magical spell, uh, they can inject out and that blows the entire thing. Okay. So you you just don't share it. And then eventually, if if you're lucky, it'll work. And you use that to bolster your belief that it works because belief is one of the strongest modulators of whether it's going to work at all. That's another reason why you don't share with somebody else because a tiny bit of doubt, as little as a raised eyebrow, can can squash the entire exercise. Hmm. So people use different methods. They will have a journal, a special journal that they only use for that purpose. Uh, they might have a special piece of paper that they draw upon and then burn the paper so that it, it like is released mm-hmm. and they don't have to dwell on it anymore. The, the other approach, which is very similar to this, is the sigil. Oh, let me back up for a second. So the reason why a spell is called a spell is because it has two meanings. One is it is a magical spell. You're casting what, you're, what you want out there. But the, the literal term of spell is to create a symbol that stands for something. So when you spell C-A-T, the C-A-T, according to the way that their minds work, immediately casts a cat. A picture of a cat, everything you know about a cat, all of the associations immediately come into play. Mm-hmm. So you are spelling a cat in two senses of the term. When you write down, I want something... You are spelling it with letters, with symbols, and you are casting a spell. Hmm. By the same token, a sigil has two meanings of the word draw. A sigil is simply a symbolic representation, not in the terms of letters typically, but as a symbol that you create out of letters, which stands for the thing that you want to draw towards yourself. So you're drawing it like an artist, but you're also drawing it like you're pulling it from the future. You're pulling yourself or, or you're pulling yourself into the future where that thing manifests. So I, I have a hidden uh, sigil in the book. I, I give an example of how you would create a sigil to find some money, but I actually hid a, sig- a sigil in the book itself somewhere where I'm not going to say where it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there's a, there's a spell in the book. I'm putting it that way. For for the manifestation of a uh, hundred thousand uh, uh, copy seller, is that what it's for? It's something like that, yes. <laughs> excellent, Dean. Excellent. Well, hey, this has been fun. Uh, I, I want uh, to finish up with, with the, the final question of what do you want the reader to get out of this book? This is a, a very fun book to read, but not only that, it's it's in depth. You've covered a lot of history. You give a lot of great examples. But what do you want the reader to take away? Well, I guess it's that because so many people are interested in psychic things and in magical things, that to give them a sense that the the reason why we're attracted to the entertainment side of magic is because a little piece of ourselves are thinking, I wonder if that could be real. Mm-hmm. Well, this book presents scientific reasons to say, yeah, it is real. And there are a few things we know about it. Well, we certainly we know from a scientific perspective that the evidence says, yeah, these things are real. There are certain practices at work. There are implications about it. And for scientists 
who who read this, and I, I kind of wrote this for people who have an interest in science. The reason why it, the book has been endorsed by two Nobel laureates and by a former program director at the National Science Foundation and a medal winner at the National Academy of Sciences and the former president of the American Statistical Association and on and on and on. This has been endorsed by very high-ranked prominent scientists because they recognize that this whole point about magic is that it's not a regression to the past. It's a projection of science of the future. And I mean, that's that's one sentence basically saying the whole thing, but it takes about 200 pages to flush that out to see why these these prominent scientists would be saying, holy smoke, this is important from a scientific perspective. Wow. The book is Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. Boy, that's a powerful title. <laughs> and uh, my guest today has been Dr. Dean Radin and... Uh, Dean, uh, where um, what, what's your website? People need to know where your website is. Do you have one that you have? Yeah, your... yeah. yeah. It's uh, deanradin.com, deanradin.org, or both of those will take you to realmagicbook.com. Fantastic. We got to have you back on, Dean. Uh, it's it's hard. I mean, it's, it's been two years since we talked uh, or I communicated with you last. We got to get you get back on. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, that, this has been fun, and uh, I really appreciate your time. And by the way, if you're going to be at the New Living Expo Friday, the 27th, Dean will be uh, there uh, as part of a, a movie premiere uh, that is called PGS Intuition. He is featured in the movie, and the uh, director, producer, I think he's also the writer, Bill Bennett, will be there too right. uh, to join um a couple of people, including Dean, who was uh, featured prominently in the movie. So we'll yeah, I'm also giving a talk, and I believe in the same room before that movie is shown. Oh, you're actually on the pro. <laughs> I should know yeah. that. I don't. Yeah, okay. I'm one of the speakers too. Are you talking about real magic? Yeah, I am. Oh, okay, perfect. There you go. Okay, fantastic. Dean, it's been a pleasure, and uh, we hope to have you back. Thanks very much. A Real Magic is available on Amazon. You can go to Amazon.com, t- uh, punch in uh, Real Magic or Dean Radin, R-A-D-I-N. And he's got all his books there, and uh, you can get a copy of that. He also has the audio version, too, which is kind of cool. Uh, I'm always interested in listening to books via Audible uh, because it's just easier to, to, to read, to get through the book that way. So that's another option. Thanks today to my crew, uh, LeGrand Green, uh, Adam Young, Curtis Hartog, Mark Foster, and everybody else who uh, contributed to today's program. So that's it for today, and I hope you have a great week. Enjoy yourself, and we will talk to you next time.